Hey, Neil, what's up? How are you? Good. Looking forward to another fascinating uh, 40 minutes or so with our next guest. Yeah, Chief Ray Aiken. Yeah, so this is all about the Irish Civil War. It's all part of our series uh, that we're doing on Ireland 1922 to uh, 2022. And, um, yeah, we've a really good schedule of guests uh, from all aspects uh, of the country. Um, and we'll be delving into uh, the so-called troubles in Northern Ireland as well, which, of course, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of that will, you know, will relate directly to, to what happened here. So in, in the Irish Civil War. Um, so what Chief has done, I think, in her book, um, she has delved into the stories and uh, the, the stories that went untold uh, until mm. very recently. Um, the, you know, it, it, it was I suppose people were very uncomfortable. I mean, it was such a rift. The rift was so quick and it was like, it was so black and white when it happened. It was just, I was like, wow, you know, you, and literally you did have family members that were, um, uh, you know, on the on, on different sides. And what is the name of the book? That The book is called Spiritual Wounds and I think it's a very apt title. So welcome uh, to Shifra Aiken, uh, the author of a book on the Irish Civil War called Spiritual Wounds. So, now, the Irish Civil War um, was something that wasn't discussed, I think I'd uh, be fair to say, for quite some time after it happened. And I mean, there, there's some obvious reasons that we'll discuss. Uh, that That's probably the, the reason for that. I suppose for our listeners that may not know what the Irish Civil War is or what it was all about or what it followed on from, uh, perhaps might give us a brief introduction as to uh, to what it's all about. Then we'll delve a little deeper. Great. Well, thanks so much, first of all, for having me on the podcast. And I'm really happy to be here. Um, so absolutely, there's always been this sense that the Irish Civil War was maybe something of an embarrassment, something that wasn't spoken of. And it was this conflict um, between two forces of the IRA who'd previously been, been comrades in the year 1922-23, but it comes at the end of this prolonged revolutionary period, which really starts off um, with the 1916 um, rising um, in Dublin. So essentially it's during the First World War um, and a group of revolutionaries, largely Dublin-based, but based across the country, um, gather together and plan and plot a rising, which really wasn't quite you know, a military success, but it had huge implications, uh, and particularly in terms of shifting um, public opinion. And the rising was then followed by a, a guerrilla war campaign, which began in earnest in 1919. So this is the Irish Republican Army, uh, supported by Cumann the women's branch, or the women's auxiliary, and they waged a, a guerrilla war campaign against the British forces. So essentially, these are um, men and women, young men and women, who have very little military training. Um, but um, managed to, I suppose, oppose the the, the, the military forces, um, and ultimately that leads to um, the British coming to um, coming coming to, to together to to, to um, make some kind of negotiation um, around the situation in Ireland, and a, a treaty is signed at the end of 1921, which um, leads to the establishment of the Irish Free State in the southern counties, the 26 southern counties, um, but it, it causes a huge rift then between those revolutionaries who'd been active in that entire period. And that's really what happens then in the Irish Civil War. It is that uh, conflict between different factions of the, the those revolutionaries who do not agree with the terms of the treaty. And I suppose it's also a, a period where we see high 
um, mortality rates. We see um, the execution of politicians, um, the assassination of politicians, sorry. Then we have the execution of um, prisoners, um, particularly um, anti-treaty prisoners by, by the new state, and also very high rates of incarceration. So we have huge numbers of Irish activists who are being um, incarcerated essentially by their former comrades. It's it's it really is incredible and like the the thing which you mentioned the the, the coming of Mon like women had huge role uh, to play and what I found really interesting is the fact that um, when the coming came to vote on the treaty that it was uh, four hundred and sixteen to sixty uh, four hundred and sixteen against to sixty three four so they were really radical and uh, certainly were very much behind. Uh, the Republican side and and uh, going against the treaty and, and that you know I found that really interesting you know um, they they play a play a huge part but as I said throughout the whole process of the World War and the War of Independence uh, really really interesting um, but uh, as well what you mentioned there about uh, people um, the anti treaty uh, forces um, uh, being executed by the Free State. Um, there was more executions, I think, in a seven-month period, 77, I think, um, that were executed by the Irish Free State uh, than the English had executed over, you know, a, a couple of years. Um, and uh, that must have been so difficult. You know, I, I just, because these, like you said, these people were comrades, you know, uh, comrades before. And, you know, what, what was all this about? In, in essence, I mean, okay, I know it's a bit more complicated than this, but one of the main points was one side would not pledge an oath of allegiance to the king of England. And that was one of the main arguments. Would that be correct to say? Yeah, there was also the question of partition, and so that was there certainly would have been many that didn't feel that this this was the republic that um they had fought for and that they sacrificed for, and that would have been looking for for an all Ireland republic, um rather than um a twenty six county um free state, which as as you said had had a, an oath of allegiance to to the British monarch, so definitely there was a, a a lot of contentious questions. And the other thing to to think of as well is that there were also quite a number of revolutionaries who were neutral or tried to be neutral or or, or weren't weren't really um satisfied with either either arrangement. And um, so I think that that it's all those complexities that we're teasing out now in, in this hundred years on. Absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and there was certainly something there in the, like, there was different parts of the country um, would have had different views as well. And and I think during the, the truce, so when, when the War of Independence essentially uh, had stopped, the killing in uh, the northern um, counties continued. I, I think there was something like... Um, 500 killed between 21 and 22 something like that so um the violence you know not not the, all that dissimilar to what was happening in the 70s and 80s um continued apace while uh, while everybody else was um, certainly given the treaty uh, a shot um, so it didn't and i know munster was certainly very much uh, republican and what well, anti-treaty is that correct yeah, so I suppose what what I'm interested in the book is about how people um addressed it. So just if if we if we come back first of all to to, to what's happening in the north, it's a very different context. Um, but it is actually interesting for for what I'm what I've been looking at, which is testimony. So how did people actually 
address it or write about it in the in the following years. Um, and I think what what I'm really interested in is the fact that there is such an emphasis on silence. But um, then when we actually delve into the context and we look, if, when we actually look for material, there is actually much more material uh, and much more testimonies from activists than have, has previously been assumed. Um, but at the same time, there are, I, I suppose, gaps of silences. And definitely the context in the North would be one of those. Um, and I think the North is, is, is just a very different context in, the, in, the, in this period. So the, the truce um, was a, a truce between the, the British forces and, and the IRA in, in, in July 1921. Um, but we also have so many, I suppose, smaller local rifts that aren't going to be obeying by, I suppose, um, that, that kind of, of, of truce at the, or the, the, those conventional, um, I suppose, standards of, of warfare. And that's definitely the case then in the north where we see um, very high rates of violence. And some of this is triggered around the expulsion Catholic men from the the, the the dockyards in Belfast, but also um, Protestant and um, what they would have referred to as the, the rotten prods, Protestants who would have been interested in the trade unions who were so, socially aware and interested in, in, in maybe workers' rights. So there's a huge social um, element to all of this as well. Um, and sometimes that gets lost um, in, in some of the um, uh, some of the, I suppose, considerations of, of the, the complexities of this period. But just back to testimony again, you find that you get much less testimony from certain places and certain populations, particularly in, in, in the north, that even finding a publisher and writing about your experience from the 1920s. I don't think any of the publishers would have been publishing anything, but it was still quite um, dangerous nearly to be known to be an active or to have been an active revolutionary in the 30s and 40s. Um, in, in the context of the state of Northern Ireland. Um, so there's definitely regional differences, but nevertheless, there's quite a remarkable number of, of participants who went out of their way in very create, creative ways to, to address their role in this um, complex period. Well, the very nature um, of, of civil war itself, Shiva, is, look, you know, it would be pissy to say that, that war is anything but unpleasant for want of a better word but the very nature of civil war introduces a whole new element of nastiness into um the conduct of it so we have this you know we hear i don't well you can correct us here but this um myth if you like perhaps not a myth of son against father brother against brother you know it, it's so violent and so into the scene families literally tearing each other apart and through the testimony that you discovered through your research like just how much of a factor or reality was that element yeah no it's really interesting there is that brother against brothers trope and it actually goes back to roman tropes and Ro roman understandings of the civil war who were the first i suppose to attempt to, to to document civil war through narrative and through storytelling and um, so these tropes are already in existence in a way in Ireland before the civil war even erupts um, that these were um, popular metaphors to understand civil war and I suppose the, the intimate nature of civil war. And um, so we do see these tropes being used a lot, um, brother against brother, father against son. Um, a lot of the female scholars have, have pointed the fact to the fact that there's also um, sister against sister um, um, within this, that this, this, it, those, those gendered, I suppose, um, tropes maybe conceal um, what we already talked about there um, that this was this was a war that affected the entire population and um, but in terms of how these were reflected in reality there absolutely were 
um, cases where um, men in the same families, brothers, took opposing sides to, to, to the treaty, absolutely. And there absolutely were cases where women equally were on different sides and families were on different sides. Um, and I think you can you can imagine any kind of political debate in any kind of family. There's 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 very seldom is there a consensus. Um, and in some cases, these the consequences were really difficult for some families. Um, so the Hales brothers will be a, a, a very uh, famous example. And Sean Hales um, was a pro-treaty um, TD who was assassinated by the anti-treaty Republicans and his brother was um, part of the anti-treaty side. So that would be one case. But there, there are absolutely examples that I suppose support those tropes, those international tropes. Those tropes, as you mentioned, and, and as you just pointed out there as well, you know, the, the wording is brother against brother, as I said, and father against son. You don't hear so much from the female perspective. You don't hear sister against sister. Why? And, and this follows true in your book, right? I mean, you know, these are, like Derek said earlier, like on a political front, they were quite vocal, but like individuals and individual families, don't you don't hear so much about the, the women folk if, the, if that's the right wording. And why, if that's the case, why is that the case? Do you think? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I think the first, the first, uh, answer, first answer we've already answered in a way. Those international tropes conceal women's involvement, um, and they were already established. Um, but there, there's also, I suppose, uh, other other reasons f for this. Um, it's often often in in post-conflict, uh, I suppose, commemorative cultures or in the aftermath of conflicts internationally, there tends to be a need to come up with some kind of simplified narrative mm. um, that people can agree on maybe for some form of cons consensus. And within the Irish context, the they narrative, the dominant narrative of that revolutionary period certainly didn't dwell on women's um, involvement and it didn't dwell, dwell on the civil war. And what's interesting about the Civil War is that women were perhaps more active during the Civil War period or had more important roles than they would have occupied in the earlier um, guerrilla war campaign. And part of that is particularly, um, as we said, is that there was a very strong contingent of active political women who were very opposed to the treaty. Um, on, so they were on the anti-treaty Republican side. There, there were also activists and um, women activists on the pro-treaty side, and there was a split in the organisation. But nevertheless, there were these very... Um, very highly active women and um, highly involved in the anti-trade republican side and then as the men were increasingly incarcerated during the, the civil war particularly the republican men all, all the republican activists and um, these women were kind of pushed into and or happily adopted in some cases these military roles that they might have been occupying previous to this so we have um women driving cars during the battle of the four courts in, in dublin we have women not only transporting arms and messages but also carrying weapons um, and that's that's something that maybe hasn't been fully teased out. It's not an image that we imagine associated with the Civil War. And then they also suffered um, really um, severe consequences because of their vocal condemnation of the of the treaty. And um, so we mentioned there that they were the Kamenaman were one of the first organisations to reject the treaty. And then equally in the Dáil in the government, um, the six TDs or the six um, members of Parliament. They all who were women, they all opposed um the treaty very publicly, um and that led in a way to very, um very I suppose harsh rhetoric in in public discourse around women and these women who had 
um, I suppose, rejected their traditional duties to the nation in a way by taking up these um, masculine positions. And equally, the women were, um, many women who were active were um, in prison during this period. Over 600 women were in prison, which is much more than previous that um, under the British. And they would have um, been on hunger strikes, suffered quite badly um, for, for, during the, their, their time in prison. And they would have various experiences in prison. But I think that in the aftermath of the, of the revolutionary period, there's a discomfort around that. And there really is, is a, 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 an attempt to... Um, maybe just overlook uh, the, the women's involvement. So they're not included in the big commemorative um, events, um, particularly not in the, the um, archival material that's being gathered. Gathered, For example, the Bureau of Military History women are severely underrepresented in these statements that were gathered in the 1950s, 1940s to the 1950s by the state. Um, but what I was interested in the book is that there were some women who found ways to document their experience during the Civil War in very creative ways. So a really interesting example actually is a common man activist called Annie P. Smithson, but she was also a romance novelist and became one of the most best-selling romance novelists in Ireland of the 20th century. And one of her novels was published in 1936 and it's called The Marriage of Nurse Harding. And we could look at it as a, as a kind of conventional um, romance, love across the divide novel. But there's actually three chapters in that novel which are um, really a description of her experience in the Civil War and that was her involvement in um, the, the Battle for Dublin in June 1922, June July 1922 um, and then her subsequent um, imprisonment, brief imprisonment in, in Mullingar because of her association with the anti-treaty side. Wow, there you go. Yeah. A name that jumps out from, from times past and, you know, probably signifies that like some of the, the lone voices that stand out purely because they were the lone voices right i mean for for every one of those examples how many other examples are the ones that were incarcerated we never hear about ever yeah yeah well we, we ended up we ended up with a very patriarchal theocratic society you know under devil errors Ireland as well and what what brought you to, to do this book then share for yourself you know and just you know just a little bit of background about your studies as well like was it part of that your your you know um your work in college and, and through your own education was this something that you kind of tapped into or that spoke to you or was it a departure from that entirely yeah so this was based on a phd project um it was something i was always quite interested in i actually studied spanish in undergrad and studied the spanish civil war and i was very aware of the fact that there were a wealth of there's a wealth of scholarship on the aftermaths of the, the Spanish Civil War and I suppose testimonies from the Spanish Civil War, um, and I didn't feel that there was the same attention to the I suppose the legacy of the the Irish Civil War, um, Anne Dolan's book on commemoration and the Irish Civil War would be the one major example I suppose, and that's from two thousand and three as far as I, I remember, um, mm. so I really I really was interested in maybe exploring that idea of the silence and the, the um, culture of silence around the Civil War. Mm. Um, but when I started off on the project, I can't say I knew where it was going to go or that mm. there would be as much material as I found. And what I found really quite quickly was that there, well, not even quickly, but soon enough anyway, I discovered there was a project there. But I found out that there was this huge wealth of material of writings by revolutionaries that had managed to make their way into public discourse, at least had been published. So it's not that there was a silence about 
what was being published because these these testimonies were being published in the 1920s and 30s so really the silence is about who was listening to what was being published and um, but the other major i suppose striking finding within this is that many revolutionaries were, weren't writing in i suppose conventional autobiographies that they were writing in much more creative forms and particularly in autobiographical novels mm -hmm. and that was um in a way one of the most dominant narrative forms in this period in the 1920s and 1930s um, and it gave protection I suppose that you could say things that you couldn't say maybe when you use the first person but the other thing is that it reflects the um, commemorative culture in Europe at the time that these um, participants were reading the First World War novels All Quiet on the Western Front that were novels that were blended with personal experience and that was I suppose the model that they were able to tap into and to address their experiences and what's interesting is that it was acknowledged at the time that there were was a wealth of revolutionary autobiographical novels but it hasn't been picked up on um, sufficiently anyway by historians since until, until you came along yeah it's pretty exciting isn't it I'm, I'm i'm a writer myself where you kind of discover oh, you have an idea you know and it it, it grows and it grows and you you know you're you're kind of going well is there you don't start off necessarily as you know like you said you don't know where it could lead you but it's pretty exciting isn't it when you start to come across this treasure trove of stuff that's been laying literally buried uh with layers of dust sometimes even literally yeah you know. where where did you go this is like where where, yeah, did you, where did you unearth all the stuff where did you start well i suppose one of the most striking things is some of them were were really just in plain sight so if you went to a secondhand bookshop chapters in dublin you would find annie yeah. p smithson's no novels and um, i would have uh, got a lot of other material in the National Library and in, in, in various different libraries and um, but I think that's the more striking thing it wasn't that you had to dig in very deeply for some of these because the, these what I'm interested in testimony so testimony is different from a personal story a personal story that's locked up in a drawer and never shared that's not a testimony a testimony is something that's thrown into the public domain and mm. um, so these are all still in the public domain um, and they have been in the public domain some of them for for nearly 100 years some of these early ones from 1920s but a whole huge part, huge part of the project is i suppose looking at the lengths that these veterans went to to document their experiences what was the personal motivation behind this was it an attempt to exercise it to process their experience was there a, a, i suppose a a, a, a therapeutic aspect if we're thinking of trauma associated with some of this and then equally what was the public's reaction um, and how were these uh, received and looking at how in some cases these were really really well received but then haven't been mentioned since or in other cases some of these um, writings were condemned in various different ways whether that was in literary circles in terms of them being excluded from the literary canons whether that's from the church pulpits that we've revolutionaries who were um, excommunicated on account of their writing. We also have um, cases where revolutionaries maybe themselves censor them as well. So there's all of these layering processes of um, silencing that happens. And I suppose that's, that's what I'm interested in because um, it's not that there wasn't a silence around the civil war. There was, but there was a huge number of people who attempted to break the silence these these are the voices that i'm interested in and um, but equally there were these processes of silencing that um maintained these these dissenting voices on the margins of revolutionary commemoration and well, what sort of reaction have you got since the book's been published in terms of you know from you know fellow people that study this sort of thing and even from people like ourselves who are just interested in history and just to be absolutely honest it's almost like 
admitting you don't, you know, can't speak Irish. You know, you know when you go abroad and you know people say you said from you're from Ireland, but you can't speak Irish. You know, I I didn't try speak to to learn Irish because I just you know like a lot of people in my generation kind of butted up against it. But now you're kind of almost embarrassed. You know, mm-hmm. you can't speak your own language. And you know, I I love history. Shaver Derek does as well. There's plenty. This is why we're doing this podcast. There's so many history lovers out there. You know, we can talk. You know, the arm of you about the First World War, the Second World War. You know, some of the big wars that our neighbour Great Britain's been involved in. But and, and maybe perhaps a little bit about the 1916 right because it's a bit more clear cut. But I'll be honest. You know, when it comes to the stuff that we're talking about right now, it's almost like my my inability to speak Irish. Mm-hmm. I feel the same kind of awkward. Um, you know, a little bit of embarrassment that I just don't know that much about it. So, you know, it, is that the sort of reaction you got yourself to your work? Um, well, um, the first thing is, like, I can definitely understand that because I think that was why I was so motivated to address the Civil War because I was very conscious, even in school, that it was always glossed over, that I was not never um, something that I fully understood and that I always felt that my, I suppose, my, my, interest was never satisfied um when I was a student in any case and that's really what led me to to address this this I suppose unknown um but in terms of the reaction yeah the reaction has been um really positive so so far and I suppose one of the things that I've been really happy about in, in the in terms of the responses that it's really been um I think an interest to people from different backgrounds and different, mm. I suppose, scholarly backgrounds, but also um, from the, the general public and for maybe um, people who wouldn't necessarily be used to looking at a book like this because it's not a traditional history of the Civil War. Um, mm. And it, it does, I suppose, draw on a lot of these cultural theories and particularly on um, ideas of trauma and medical understanding of trauma. So how, how, do, you, how do you grapple with the, the association between the civil war and trauma when trauma didn't even exist as a, as a concept in, in this period. Um, so there are all of these questions to tease out. But I think absolutely there's been a really um, a real real interest among the um, general public in, in these questions. Um, mm. And also, um, I suppose one of the things that's so remarkable in Ireland is how privileged we are as historians that we have such an eager and very well educated public to engage with yeah. our work and I'm not sure if that's the case in, in other contexts so all I can say is that it's, it's an absolute privilege to, to be sharing this work and then also having um, um, discussions with people on it and people have have, have different opinions um, on the civil war and I think that's that's the part of it is this is a contentious period absolutely um, and that's what I was trying to accommodate in the book as well I've made sure that in most chapters there's both the pro and anti-treaty perspective addressed and even mm. then within the pro and anti-treaty perspectives there's so many um, different perspectives within those two groups and um, neutral partic- participants and, and revolutionaries who didn't quite fit in any camp so I suppose I've just tried to, to bring together these dissenting voices and let their stories be heard um, without necessarily passing judgment on them myself or or trying to um, maybe looking at them slightly different from a historian. I think some of the historians might be more interested in, um, and I, I suppose I am a historian, but maybe not in the same traditional sense. I'm not looking at these to, to fact check the, yeah. the, the accounts. I'm actually just looking at the, the process of, of the um, the publication of these testimonies and what was the motivation um, so sometimes the fact checks are in, are in the footnotes, but it's not my main concern because yeah. obviously when people tell their stories, they may um, make mistakes, they may give the wrong figures and so on. And um, so that's something that I think is part of 
of remembering something that that that, that these are are um, I suppose um, narratives written yeah, at a specific human nature. time. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But there's, lot, there's lots of exciting stories. Uh, you know, this whole thing. I mean, all I remember from like that school, it was literally, it was a lot of names and a lot of dates. And there was no meat to any of the, any of the stories. That's the thing. So you just got recorded and you had all these sets of facts and you couldn't make sense of the facts because there was nothing behind them. Um, but when you do put that, you've got actual real testimony, like you say. But then, you know, and there's a lot of really exciting stuff. I know it's horrific, but, uh, you know, there's, there's, um, you could make a few movies out of it, that's for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, it has kind of an episode of Peaky Blinders almost written all over it, you know. Um, but but on a more serious note, just before you came on, Shiva, we were talking about myself and Derek, the fact that, the, you know, particularly with Civil Wars, the scars run deep, you know, and like perhaps arguably in some ways they run deeper and longer than regular want for a better word warfare you know we've made we've made peace with the so-called the brits you know we've gotten past that to, to a large extent you know as a nation and um, you know as you see there you know the passing of the queen and that you know and um, so like I, I suppose that would you would you agree that the the very nature of this subject the topic that you've covered means that we're still grappling with it uh, as a nation more so perhaps than than fighting against the british would you say that we're still, you mentioned trauma there, you know, that that's a very, you know, difficult um, experience to, to, to work out, to, to feel your way through. So do you think we're, we're still in a way, you know, experiencing the civil war or have we moved on to a certain extent? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think that there's two ways of looking that, at looking at that. In one sense, you can say that, participants have always been grappling with this and quite publicly and that's what the book shows that there've been all of these examples of people trying to tell their story and airing airing their voices but on the other hand the way that these this myth of silence has been consolidated and how a lot of these voices have been sidelined and they're definitely were not on the school syllabus when we were in school we did not know about some of these really fascinating novels that were written about the period that I suppose shows the discomfort yeah. Um, around the memory of the civil war and how enduring that was and then even if you think that the, this book is published 100 years after the civil war and that, that that so much of this material hadn't been addressed before I think that again speaks to a discomfort um, around the contentious period um, and even when I would have started on this project people would have said to me well why would you want to study the civil war you know there was definitely um, even then the, the kind of gatekeepers who are trying to 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 not um, address this, and I think there is a still a discomfort maybe in some of the state um programs. There's still debates in terms of how do you choose a an event to commemorate because the, um the state doesn't want to be associated necessarily with either side of the the civil war split, um so I don't think it's resolved. And then I think, as you said, in terms of intergenerational aspect, I think that's quite interesting because one of the things that I've been teasing out is the 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 idea of silence and how strong it is in later generations in particular that particularly the children of revolutionaries and the grandchildren of revolutionaries will tell you how their families wouldn't speak about the civil war and how i suppose sore this was and um, and sometimes you feel that the later generations were were i suppose felt the silence stronger that maybe revolutionaries themselves 
were comfortable to speak about this in confidence with certain comrades and colleagues in this correct settings, but they didn't necessarily want to pass that baggage onto their children. So the silence comes from a, a protective strategy in a way. So the children definitely feel the silence, the legacy of silence in a way that maybe their parents um, didn't, but they um, I suppose dealt with it in a different way. Um, but the other thing is I have done quite a number of oral history interviews. The other remarkable thing is that you speak to people now and they'll say to you, first of all, oh, nobody spoke about the Civil War. But I can tell you all of these things that I heard, you know, maybe I was listening through the through a crack in the door and eavesdropping on, on conversations <laughs> that I wasn't meant to listen to. So I think even though people will open up and say that, you know, they'll start the conversation by saying, well, there is silence. Usually that will be followed by by what what got through the silence. And there's I think a huge amount of memories and materials and stories managed to get through the silence despite the discomfort around this. Well, it sounds like you enjoyed it, um, despite its its weighty subject and you know, <laughs> some some of the detail you you must have got into. Um, would it lead you on to do further work in this particular field, or would you have plans to do something different next time? Presumably, when you when you sit down to write. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I have the thing is actually it's funny when you when you put out a book. You've um, it's nearly been done a year or two before it actually makes its way to the bookshelves. Um, so I have been been writing more about um that intergenerational aspect of the civil war. So that's that's not addressed in in the book itself. The book is just concerned with veterans and participants and their writings. Um, and then I have looked at how I suppose later generations have been grappling with that right up to the present. Um, and another aspect of it that I'm quite interested in is looking at. Um, how the Civil War not only had ramifications in Ireland, but also internationally, and how the Irish Civil War was picked up on um, all across the world, really, in, in different forms. Um, so I'm hoping to um, organise a, a seminar in the next number of months, which will invite scholars from around the world, um, I, you know, working in different languages, to um, address how the Irish Civil War then had these ramifications in, in other contexts, or how it was how it was documented and um, reported on in other contexts. We're excited. Yeah. yeah. I have a, a thought there as well, just like we, you know, as a nation through the War of Independence and into the Civil War, quite progressive and with, with obviously the, the role that women play, and I was quite, quite interested in this because what happened, I think, after the Civil War, there was a, a lot, this is the intergenerational thing, there was a long period of progression and, you know, that progression kind of probably runs up to Mary Robinson and then things start to change, you know, when, when Mary Robinson becomes president. Um, so, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think like women had a very, they had a very important role to play and should have really continued in that vein um, after the Civil War, but that didn't happen, you know, and uh, it's uh, it's just interesting how their voices were were silenced, if you like, um, and uh, their, their place in society uh, wasn't recognised properly for many, many years. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's books like this, this is why it's so important, isn't it? Like to keep all these voices, you know, to, to, to hear them again down through history because sometimes history like my, myself and Derek are always saying is, is right up to yesterday you know if yeah. people have a concept of history you know we spoke to an archaeologist on one of the earlier shows and so we're going that's you know almost prehistory I think to call it so from all the way from prehistory right up to to yesterday all of these aspects are important and that's why this sort of work that you've done Schiffer is important and, and really interesting I mean I have to say Derek 
you know, I'd be I'd be reading. We read a lot, obviously, on there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. read quite a bit as well. Yeah. You no, know, but it's really it's really piqued my interest. I want to thank you for that. Like, it's really brought it to the forefront of my mind. I'm going to go back now and and read a little bit more about what you've written and, and those aspects of it. And also try and learn a little bit more Irish while I'm at it as well. While you're at it as well, yeah. But I, I've looked at my grandmother and I grew up with my grandmother, granddad and, uh, you know, uh, mum uh, and uncle. And my grandmother, like, she took so many secrets to the grave, you know. And she, she had an uncle in the IRA who fled to New York, you know, uh, Uncle George O'Malley. That's all we know. She was nothing ever said. And, you know, even with her own life and experience in life, everything was tight-lipped and uh, she took so much information about you know my own family to the grave with her and to this yeah. day we'll, we'll never know you know so that was a society that was part of the society she grew up in and all those yeah. stories lost to time and lost to history will never be heard yeah. of again so that's why it's it's really great it's it's privileged yeah, that you did that book yeah, yeah. no and just i think what you you've hit, touched it as well as the diaspora as well that this was also yes. huge levels of emigration in the aftermath of the um this of war so that's something that I was really interested in and particularly how how maybe sometimes if you look at the diaspora that they were more likely to speak about this of war in the US than they were here similar opinions wasn't it in the US it was still the same thing with, with women being really anti-treaty uh, um, and but the same kind of splits over in America uh, as there was uh, here in Ireland even though obviously they never had to lift a uh, lift a gun yeah but uh no it's brilliant but it's been fa fantastic um to, to have you on and uh you know we don't mind have you on again for your next book now mm -hmm. you have to give us the heads up and uh we'll do a we'll do a show and a plug before it gets uh released because uh I, i'd love to know like what you're doing now you know yeah i'd be really really interested in it myself so um yeah keep up the good work yeah, brilliant shoot. Thank, thank you so much for your time. Very generous with your time, and I can't believe it flew so quickly. Like that—that's what happens, you know, on these on these podcasts. You know, we some of the subjects we know more about than others. You know, we'd be talking about, oh, you know, you know, what should we have? You have to do a little bit of preparation work, you know. But like, the, the, when you're really getting into the subject and you're really fascinated, the time just it just shoots by. So that's certainly my experience this evening. So, thank you very oh, no, much. Thanks so much for having me on. You're more than thanks. Thanks for Take your time. Care. Thanks. Bye-bye. 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 That was, uh, yeah, really, really interesting. And uh, she's onto the right track, I think, Neil, with um, uh, her studies and uh, write the books that she's doing. It's important. It hasn't, uh, hasn't been done before. So these are original works uh, and works that will probably make their way onto uh, the reading lists in uh, all the colleges uh, teaching the history of Ireland in the Civil War. Yeah, really, like like yeah. like I said, there like it really brought it. Um, like it's just something I want to go and read more about now. It's just yeah. we don't, you know, as amateur historians, we we like I said, we can we can bore the ears off you about the Battle of Trafalgar or you know, yeah, battles around the world. But this is right in our backyard, and this is us getting educated. You know, this is like I want to do that online degree on history. Pull the plug in DCU. Yeah. Yeah, we don't need it. We just got no, historians. Just and, and, and our and our yeah. listeners don't need it either. Here you go, folks. Yeah, this is it. free educate. Well, free for the moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if we want to make a donation, if you want to make a donation, that that was. We suggest the euro, please. That was my non too subtle lead in trying to take the money. But for the moment, I mean, come on, yeah. less than. The you know, price of a cup of coffee, you're getting free education here, folks. So you know, Absolutely, yeah, don't yeah, bother yeah, going yeah. to college. Don't bother going to your education. 
Just tune in here every week to the historians and we'll learn you.